this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's. Unsympathetic intellects slowly and surely drew their plans against us. It is Foreign Invader with Conrado Falco III. Hello everybody, welcome to Foreign Invader. I am Conrado Falco III. I know that there hasn't been a podcast in a while. Listen to me, I sound like a real podcaster. That's how you know you're listening to a real independent podcast when the first thing the host says is, I know there hasn't been a podcast in a while. Um, but, you know, uh, there's been a lot going on. I've been busy with the second season of my web series, Wormholes, which you can watch all of it now on YouTube if you search Wormholes the series. And I feel like you... Well, I feel like if you're listening to this, you probably already know about it. But if you don't, then you should check it out, and I think you will enjoy it. Anyway, um, I am here to make a introduction about what this podcast is. I am trying to get back in the swing of things, but this had to come out right now because the Cannes Film Festival is going on over in France, and that means that it's time to try to establish a tradition, because last year, um, Nick Davis, the great film professor and film critic, professor of film and gender studies, I believe, in the uh, in Northwestern University, out there in the Midwest, um, is back to talk about Khan. We did a 2011 podcast last year, and he's back. Um, this year to talk about the films of 2002. If you don't know who Nick Davis is, you are really missing out. He is one of, if not my favorite film critic or, you know, my favorite person to read whatever he thinks about film. And the way to do that is there's a couple of ways, actually. There's his website, which is nick-davis.com. And... There's also his letterbox, which is very active, at least recently, uh, which you should check out if you have letterbox, which is the social media for movies, and you search for Nick Davis. His avatar is a little picture of Babe the Pig from the movie Babe, so you will know who he is, and um, you will be able to read all of his incredible and very insightful reviews. Okay, so I am going to give it up to uh, myself in the past when I was talking to Nick Davis before I did this introduction. I hope you guys enjoy. All right, so we're here with Nick Davis talking about the 20... No, sorry, the 2002 Cannes Film Festival. Um, so, Nick, uh, do you have memories of the 2002 Cannes Film Festival? Uh, I don't have personal memories from any Cannes <laughs> Film Festival, sadly. Um, I do remember being really excited to know what a jury headed by David Lynch would pick. And mm -hmm. um, and as so often happens, being like learning again that like what you associate with the jury president does not mean anything about what the chosen film might look like a lot of the time. I think most of the time, right? It, it almost feels like the jury president tries to go with something very different to f from what they do. I think that's true. Yeah, if you're not Isabelle Hubert, I think that's <laughs> often what happens. But, um, and, but I also remember there seemed like an unusually high quotient of movies like Demon Lover and Irreversible that, that just pissed people off. Bowling for Columbine pissed some people off. Mm -hmm. um, there was uh, just a lot of... Um, a lot seemed to happen. <laughs> and then when I looked back 
at the schedule of screenings, I think a lot of that happened in like kind of the back half. Um, so it, it did seem like it made some media waves is what I remember. I don't, I don't know what you remember. I, I, this is before I was paying attention to Kant. So definitely um, before my time, but um, on retrospect, yes. Um, and I did some like, you know, looking back at articles and stuff for this, um, a lot of movies that pissed people off and you know the we should just go ahead and say like the palm d'or winner which is the biggest prize at Cannes that year was the pianist and that in a lot of the media reports that i saw was seen as a kind of like a bit of a mediocre choice for the palm a lot of people had like their favorites and thought it was kind of like maybe a compromise choice like a prestige drama but then nothing not particularly special um i don't know um I don't know how to, how to feel about it. Obviously, there was also the whole Roman Polanski thing, and he does go on to win the Oscar and everything, which was kind of... You must remember the Oscar race from 2002 much better than me. I do. And I, I mean, it's wild to remember that picking to give the, your major prize to Roman Polanski was like the safe, easy thing to do, you know, right. <laughs> in, this, in this context, and maybe only this context. But... Um, yeah, it was it was so both the combination of, you know, not being there and part of the festival. And I don't even remember them like live streaming the awards like they do now. Mm. Um, that was kind of an off screen event. And then by him not being, of course, at the Oscars, like he kind of was like all these things were happening around him. And he was the empty center of all of it, at least in the in the US. Um, yeah, it's a very different time. But I think maybe that will lead us into what we're actually here to do. But, um, you know, just to think of the Oscars that year or well, in 2003, but for 2002, uh, Michael Moore gets booed for winning for Bowling for Columbine and saying some, like, you know, things against Bush. Um, and Roman Polanski gets, like, you know, the Best Director Oscar with, like, relatively little controversy. Oh, I don't know. It's such a different time to what we're living now. I know. I know. And that... that um... Well, yeah, there's lots to say, but I, but what I remember about that Michael Moore moment was a bringing all the documentarians who were nominated up on stage mm -hmm. with him and making such a pitch for truth. Um, even in, he's like the weird documentarian to make a strong pitch for undiluted truth, you know, but, um, <laughs> but there was, yeah, there was a lot popping and to, to even watch these movies again, or some of them for the first time for this conversation and to realize we're less than a year out from 9-11 and, mm -hmm. um, People feel a whole lot, both changing and just amplifying what was already true in the world and um, what it would be like to watch these movies in that context. Yeah, so what we're going to do, listener, is the same thing we did last year, kind of. Last year we got together to talk about the movies of Khan 2011 and we shared our picks for the kind of like the awards. Um, and we're going to do the same, but for the year 2002. So we're going to go back 20 years instead of 10 this time. And we'll just go through the categories that they have at Cannes and, and talk about what we would have given the award to now that we have watched uh, a considerable amount of the movies that played for me. I think you, you've seen more than me. Did you get to catch all of the movies in competition, Nick? There's one movie of the 22 that I still haven't seen. but um, uh -huh. Yeah, some of them are a little tricky to find uh, nowadays. Um, but, you know, here we are. We're going to do no. that. And uh, how about we, and, and as we talk about the movies, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about uh, the selection as a whole and 2002 versus 2022 and whatever. So we will can go off on tangents if they feel um, relevant. Um, but why don't we start by looking at what I find to be a tricky category at Khan, which is a screenplay category. Mm. So do you want to tell us what you, what you picked for best screenplay and how you went about it? 
It was a tricky one for me too because I felt like one thing I love about this selection is how many of the movies feel more than in most years it feels like a really challenging but but evocative time capsule of directors taking big experiments um with even like the tools they're using to shoot their movie or the structure of the movie or new movements in their national cinema um and and so direction seems so prominent and writing was rarely the thing that even stood out to me about the movies that i loved um but within that context and also working backwards from what I hadn't sort of awarded further up, I, I think I'm curious how you'll react to this, but I, I decided I would give it to Bowling for Columbine. Oh, interesting. <laughs> which got some, um, you know, some press for it won the Writers Guild Award that year. It was pretty rare still at that time for documentaries to give themselves a screenplay credit. Um, hmm. And I appreciate about that movie for all of its unevenness of argument that um, unlike other Michael Moore movies where I feel like one could imagine arriving at a more coherent position about a sometimes even narrowly framed um, topic, that I think this one, in being a documentary that also knows it's written, kind of admits to a certain amount of vertigo about mm. how to um, offer just some panacea or encapsulated, um, I think it's clear where the movie stands, but it doesn't necessarily have a... a sentence long takeaway for better or worse and yeah. some of the situations it contrives for itself and departs in some ways from a kind of documentary frame i think make it impossible for any one audience to just feel totally affirmed by it and and i think as i i think as i know from from your posted reactions like some of those scenes are kind of misfires or damp squibs and some of them are really provocative but all of them are kind of risky and really different from what i'd imagine you would sit down if you were going to just make a documentary about gun control um, so I think I'd go that way. That's a very interesting choice, I have to say. Um, and I think that that you're right. My, I also have a very roller coastery opinion of Bowling for Columbine. I watched it for the first time a couple days ago, um, not having seen it since you know around the time it came out, um, and it surprised me by how um, entertained and how engaged I was with it. I was not expecting that because, you know, Michael Moore, talk about a different time, right? It, a time yeah. when he was like the one dissenting voice in America and he was like, there were like this whole websites dedicated to like trash and Michael Moore and stuff. And now he's like almost a side note of a side note. Um, yeah. But um, it feels to me like a very of the moment movie, kind of what you were saying, right? That he just had this thing that he needed to explore somehow. And he kind of like, goes to all these different places, puts them together, tries to form a structure out of it. And I guess that's kind of what the screenplay, how what I would think you're you're going about with screenplay, right? Like going into this adventure of trying to figure something out and trying to make a structure out of it, um, which is something that I don't know how you feel about, for example, Fahrenheit 9-11, which comes after this, which feels also very much of the moment trying to, but so much more, even more unfocused than this one, right? Even more incoherent. And I do think there is a level of, even though I disagree with some of the stuff in Bowling for Columbine, some of the stuff I feel like it should have gone even further into what he's trying to figure out. You know, I was surprised to see that he doesn't really bring up uh, gun control explicitly in the movie, mm -hmm. almost. Maybe he mentions it once, but it's not really about that. Um, but even then, it's like, a, you know, you can tell that he's engaged in the subject and he's trying to, to get at something. And maybe he fails, but maybe that's part of the, you know, interest of the movie or what makes it engaging all these years later. And an interesting time capsule, you know, talking about it yeah. 20 years later. Yeah. 
And some of the things that don't maybe quite pay off as as information, I think, do pay off as drama. Um, mm -hmm. And in Fahrenheit 9/11, I have I haven't seen that movie in a while, but I my memory of it is of maybe cheating with editing a little more often to try right. to advance a case, um, and that you know any shot of you know President Bush with a man who presents as an Arab is automatically a tableau of something right. like taking place. Um, and Bowling for Columbine just seems a little more honest to me about like, I think you're right. It's not exactly a documentary about gun control, but about whatever America's libidinal relationship to guns is about. Yeah. Um, and nobody knows. Right. Um, and, and I think the, the script of the film and kind of honors that. Yeah. It's just funny because we are going to go right ahead with the two movies we were already talking about because my pick for screenplay is The Pianist. So, oh, okay. There um, we go. So the big kind of like items of 2002, I guess, in a way. But um, I similarly, very similarly to you, I found the, the selection that I watched of the movies very interesting in their, in their, for, in their formalism and their direction, a lot of gambles in that area. Not a lot of screenplays that really shone through to me. Um, Eventually, I did go with the pianist because I thought that the writer is Ronald Harwood, and he did go on to win the Oscar for adapted screenplay for it. And um, I feel like it was a really, um, you know, I was describing it before as this kind of like middle brow prestige drama, you know, about the Holocaust, about an important topic that brings its own you know, it brings importance to it even before you've seen the movie. But I do think that within those parameters, it's a very well-written movie, well-structured movie. And I think what I really appreciate about it is how it, um, you know, it sticks to its thesis of like the, the there's no heroism really in, in this, what this man went through. It's just about surviving and it's just about going on. And it, and it would be very tempting. And maybe the fact that it was worked largely outside of the Hollywood system allowed it to avoid kind of like that wanting to give an exciting third act, you know, or build towards a character arc or like, you know, have an heroic moment towards the end. And instead, it's just this thing, this long movie that is just very harrowing in its own way, but also very much about like just numbing down everything that's horrible that's happening because that's the way to survive and just going on. So... At the end of the day, I think that is, uh, you know, the screenplay has a lot to do with that. Um, I don't know actually what your thoughts are about The Pianist as a movie. I will be sharing even more of them later. Oh, great. Um, but I remember, just in sync with what you're talking about, um, one memory from before and one thing I just learned. The memory from before was of seeing it with a friend in grad school when it was out. And, um, and I can't remember if it was a commercial that we then saw afterward or if it was somebody we overheard in the lobby but saying, you know, but what a tribute to the power of art as the thing that can get you through the most, you know, horrendous circumstances. And mm -hmm. we were like, I don't <laughs> think the movie thinks that at all. Like, you know, yeah. it, it's so unsentimental about like music is what is almost left in this guy's reptile brain of like almost bafflingly to himself. He can still do it even when everything else has been stripped away. But that does not suggest a kind of what, what, what I think you're saying Hollywood might have imposed on that of like, it's not salvational. It's not reassuring. Um, it maybe helps to be able to come up with a concerto when somebody who might kill you is moved by concertos, you know, uh -huh. like lucky, lucky stroke, but like everything else in the movie, it's kind of down to, horrible and good luck in unpredictable combinations um i also just learned recently that this i don't know if you know this that the the memoir 
was really composited over time and changed um, substance completely and was mostly assembled by Spielmann's son. Oh. Um, and the different editions published in Poland and then in England and then in France and then back in Poland and eventually in America all drop and include different things. So it was right. um, a really, I imagine, challenging adaptation maybe to render. And yeah. that's where you get to what Polanski's added in of his own um, memories. But yeah, exactly. And and that was a big um, a big point I think of discussion even back then. I remember I was I I was just a child basically back then. And but I do remember people when Polanski won the Oscar. I didn't fully understand why he was so controversial, but I did know that a lot of people were talking about he lived through it you know he was in poland at the time he was a kid and he's bringing a personal experience of the horrors of the holocaust and and i think that does shine through uh in the movie for sure i think um you know holocaust depictions are a whole different uh bag of worms that yeah. we, can of worms rather that we can get into but um we should probably just go along to to the next step even though i do agree with everything you're saying and yes and i had heard a little bit about this whole um um, thing about the book, different publications, how in Poland at the time on the post-war, maybe it wasn't a great mm. uh, a, a favorite idea by the government to publish a novel where a German acts kindly to yep. to a Jewish person so, um, yeah so, yeah and, and a very interesting movie that um, I, I feel like a lot of people aren't watching anymore, but um, with, with maybe good, good reason um, anyway how about we move on to the acting categories? Do you want to give sure. us your first um, pick for that? Um, well, I will start with the actors. Um, and I think I'd be going for Martin Comston, who's the young lead of Ken Loach's Sweet 16. Uh-huh. Um, and... I think shouldering, I don't know if you've seen that one. Um, but I did not. It was one of the ones I couldn't get to. Um, has a lot, it, it is about a 15 year old who really does feel 15. Mm. And I think Martin Comston had barely not acted before, although I don't know if he'd been training to or was one of Ken Loach's kind of, you know, discoveries from the mm. world of non-professionals who's then gone on to have this like great career. Um, and every time he pops up, he's one of those actors who I'm excited to see. Um, but there's the whole plot is about a young kid in cahoots with a best friend who's probably not the right best friend to have, um, more because he's a little hapless and unsophisticated, not because he's like a problem. Uh, well, he's kind of a problem too, but he's trying to devise a better way to get his mom out of jail than her shitty boyfriend, um, is going to manage who keeps enmeshing her in the worlds of drugs and violence that she's supposed to be getting out of. But his solutions to get her out are also going to require enmeshing him in the underworld of drugs and violence. Um, uh -huh. And he just has a spontaneity in the movie and a sense of... Um, the, it's kind of true of a lot of Ken Loach's movies, but some of them, I think, click better than others, that you really do accept him as a member of this lived reality. But it also doesn't feel... Um, sort of unshaped as a performance and you need to be on his side in some ways and you need to be really questioning him in other ways and you need to feel both that this is a kid who might be excited by getting like drawn into the world of kingpins and revenge killings and also somebody who this is the opposite of what he wanted and, and there's just a lot of different relationships at play and he he um seems like the same guy in all those in all those scenes um so even though there were some other contenders who presented themselves and sometimes in more kind of elaborately 
performed performances. His is the character I always um, think of the most as somebody I spend time with. Oh, okay. That's very, that's very interesting. Um, a movie that I really know nothing about until now that you just described it. And well, you know, since we're talking about Khan as a whole, Ken Loach, one of those directors who seems to be at Khan every other year with a new movie, yeah. very prolific. And maybe because of that, one that I haven't been very curious about, um, mm. just feels like he has movies there constantly and very rarely do they like generate a lot of talk. Um, so that's, I have to admit, this is a movie that I didn't watch because I didn't even consider it like, you know, when I had to limited time and narrowing down. So yeah. Um, surprised to to hear you talk about it, but pleasantly so. And and I don't know. I guess Ken Loach. What do you? Can you make? Uh, I don't know if this is putting you on the spot, but like, is there is there something there? Like, what what is the 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 excitement about like digging into his stuff a little more for like? Um, it's funny. He's also as you're saying, he's in competition almost all the time. And the the two Palm Doors he's won, I don't think were the two movies that that anybody thought were his peak achievements. I don't think mm. even Lotz, when he accepted those awards, seemed to think that. And um, and where he's known, he's known especially for uh, just the forthrightness and longevity of his uh, working class socialist politics and mm -hmm. of questioning um, the escalation of capitalism, but also being interested in seeing the sort of overt, but also the capillary ways that, that those forms of economic injustice and subordination bleed into everyone's life. But some movies are really about that and others like this one or which won the screenplay prize this year at Cannes. And My Name is Joe, which would, had just won the Best Actor Prize at Cannes like five years before. Um, all of that is salient context to why the characters have and don't have the choices they do and don't have, but mm. they um, aren't necessarily speaking those themes out loud in the ways that some other Loach movies do. Right. Um, so yeah, he's one of those people who's like definitely like 10 minutes in, you know, it's a Ken Loach movie. And yet for some <laughs> reason, some of them feel really magical and some of them feel pretty flat and I don't remember them and um, mixed bag. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. I do. I guess the thing that makes it hard is that he's so prolific that it's hard to know which ones to watch. You know, I'm I mean, like, I, which ones are the good ones? And people, you know, People have different opinions, but also a lot of people don't have many opinions at all because I think a lot of people feel the same way about like. That's right. Well, anyway, maybe sometime I'll do a a deep deep dive into Ken Loach. But for now, actually, segueing into my picks has been so far pretty smooth because you know let's stay in the realm of uh you know the British working class. My one of my acting picks is um, Leslie Manville in the movie All or Nothing, directed uh -huh. by Mike Lee. Another a tour of the you know British working class like I was saying who tends to make mostly movies about that and then maybe you know he has some uh, period dramas peppered into his filmography but this fits very much into that you know kind of like um, sort of like an apartment block uh, three families living in it intersecting lives a movie that started out with I started out with some hesitation when the as I was watching the movie. A little bit of like, oh, this is going to be a little very blunt. It's going to be yep. a little very depressing. And maybe the performances are going to be a little uneven. It kind of won me over by the end. And the, and the last, um, I want to say like maybe the last third of the movie, maybe it's a little less than that. Leslie Manville's really comes 
to town then and then and shines through in those last sections um and she's an actress that i love um she's great in phantom thread one of my favorite movies and also in other mike lee movies like another year and then in this one um she really i think i really appreciated how she landed this plane that i didn't know if if it was gonna land or not and then she plays this uh you know, working class uh, woman who has this family uh, with a depressive husband played by Timothy Spall and then a couple of kids who are going through uh, difficulties of their own. Um, One of her kids is played by James Corden who has like a medical emergency and then in this last section, James Corden surprisingly good in this movie, I thought. He had a pretty good performance. Back when he was a totally different performer, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, and an unknown performer for most for, for the most part. And then um, anyway, and, and this last moment when she's really freaked out about her son's health and then finally kind of like has a final moment with her daughter and then with her husband about the their whole situation. Um, I don't know, a very raw, real performance of the kind that I think Mike Lee is really good at collaborating with great actors to create that. Um, so, so yeah, I think you are not a, a huge fan of this movie, but I think we might agree that Leslie Manville is pretty good in it. Well, and I took two viewings to get where you got in one that I think I stayed in my sense that this felt a little like, um, slightly boilerplate misery in a way that Mm -hmm. it sounds like you maybe were anticipating and and maybe even felt some early in the beginning um early in the beginning i remember that allison garland i think is the name of the actress who plays the Mm -hmm. daughter and Mm -hmm. she was the character and the performance that i kind of attached to the most when i saw it in the theater and then kind of wound up remembering it as a bit of a slog in which um by not doing all that much as a character who's pretty closed off like she made the biggest impression but then um, Tim Roby really encouraged me to look at it again a few years ago and I, I really responded to it a lot more including to Manville's performance which I hadn't really remembered very well um, mm. but yeah I'm, I've become more of a fan over time yeah I think yeah I think in my mind for some reason I think maybe it's the movies that I watched first of him I always think of Mike Lee as, as this kind of like realism uh, you know naturalistic director of like very you know realistic settings and realistic performances which isn't quite true there's always very yeah. histrionic performances in his movies and and i feel like every time i watch a new one i, I get a caught off guard a little bit at the beginning by oh what's going on here you know brenda blethin in secrets and lies is like a very histrionic performer even leslie manville in something like another year yep. um all of a sudden feels like oh this character seems like more of a character than this milieu seems to be yep but, you know, there's something about it that kind of like tends, not always, but tends to bring me back in because the performance um, ends up being so raw and so effective in its emotions. And, 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 and I guess to his credit and to the credit of the actors like Leslie Manville, they feel like they're in an environment where they can go there, you know, and they feel kind of protected to go into those histrionics and, and know that it's going to land. Um, yeah. And yeah. I guess it does here for me, at least. And it seems like for you, it, and, and even ensemble, it's it's worth saying. Some some actors perform better than others. I do. I agree with you about Alison Garland. She's really great in a very quiet performance. Ruth Sheen, I think, is also very delightful. Um, Sally Hawkins, given an early performance in a, in probably oh, the most. Remember that. Uh-huh. 
that's probably the most roller coastery of the performances here. It starts okay. out really, really blunt, really like, oh, who's this? Like, she plays like the the sexy kind of neighborhood girl and you're a little like Hallie Hawkins what are you doing <laughs> but then she does really turn around by the end uh, and it, and it, she has like a really some really great moments um an interesting movie to to catch up with for those who haven't seen it um if you're interested into this sort of thing and I don't know if you agree Conrado but I I would say that there's a whole tier of movies like that one in this con vintage that are often not the sort of standout movies from those directors' bodies of work, for which reason they don't maybe get watched as often or talked about as much. And I think they're all really solid, good films to um, to check back in with. That maybe, and, and that would be a good example of one that Mike Lee fans maybe don't always glom onto, but should at least take a you mm-hmm. know. Spend some time yeah, I, I I think you're right. I, I say I would consider myself a Mike Lee fan, and I don't think I would have watched this movie if it hadn't been for this podcast. So, um, yeah, it, and definitely an interesting watch. And maybe we'll talk about some other movies like that, like you're saying later. Yeah. And I'm sure we will. Um, how about your other acting pick? Well, do you want to go first this time, or? Um, I could actually. I would like you to go first because I'm on the fence, and I wonder if you'll pick one of mine. Okay. Um, so I also surprised myself with this one, and, and you were very specific about saying we don't have to gender differentiate these prizes if we don't want to, um, and I wound up doing so anyway. But partially because on both sides, you know, both sides, but like there was not a male performance or a female performance that I've ever thought, yep, that's the one. And the ones that people tended to reward either with the actual prizes or there's some more showcase performances in a lot of these films that it just didn't strike me all that strongly, but I wound up going with, um, Mania Akbari in 10 is who really stuck out to me this time. And partially through the sheer logistics of having to do all of this scene work with a bunch of non-actors, um, and, and show us different sides of a person who's really easy for us and maybe for her to compartmentalize into just like, whoever, this is who you are when you interact with a prostitute or when you interact with your child or when you interact with um, your sister. Um, But watching as like the different interactions that she's had seem to be adjusting her mood um, over time and Mm -hmm. how her, um, she kind of offers less to her sister when her sister is in deep need than she does when her sister seems like she's doing fine. And uh, her kind of curiosity, I feel like after the, the sex worker exchange, um, there is a certain kind of distractedness um, in her performance that w- wasn't there before and watching her chart a little bit of an arc and in the interactions with the child that are so challenging. Uh, I just, and then imagining that like this, I, I think all the time about this Julianne Moore interview where somebody's like, you're naked all the time and you're in these crazy ass <laughs> movies. Like, how do you put yourself out there? And she's like, I don't give a shit about any of that. It's so easy. When I have to be in a role or I have to drive a car, it the fuck <laughs> out. Like how yeah. can you act while you're trying not to hit the other people? And <laughs> so that also think about this woman who's either not on camera at all or relentlessly on camera but is not overdoing it for that reason um mm-hmm. and has like a whole other task to negotiate on top of it like it just seemed like a harder performance than i'd ever really thought about it being totally and yeah it makes me think of a lot of actors talk about like wanting to get some business in the scene you know like which is usually like give me like a little pen that I can write something with or like, you know, Brad Pitt (laughs) getting something to put in his mouth, just something to give me a little business so that I look natural. But driving a car, that's like the ultimate test because it's something that, you know, like you were saying, you can hit someone, you're actually driving. But in a way, 
I feel like maybe in, in a situation like this, in which, the, you know, the director is coming up with scenarios and just, according to him, just letting the actors go in the car, not even with him, and just, like, improvise the scene. For someone who's working in that way, who, I, from what I understand, maybe it's not, like, a super seasoned actor, that might be, you know, driving for a lot of people, not me, because I live in New York, but for a lot of people, something very natural they do every day that can yeah. help you to get to that performance and that can, you know... Um, bring that naturalism to it. Um, it's barely possible, yeah. Although I imagine being, you know, a female taxi driver in the middle of Tehran, as you even see in the movie, leads to all kinds of weird environmental stuff coming at you from people on the outside. And um, yeah. and I read different stories about whether the other people in the cars knew they were being interviewed all the time or didn't know. Oh, or, interesting. Or where the camera was. I don't really know what to trust. Yeah. Um, but, and that she was the only trained performer of any of them who was aware of the whole game. Um, mm. So yeah, it sounds it sounds logistically challenging, but also again, when I thought about who's the person I most remember, um, when I think about Spider, I remember Miranda Richardson. I don't remember a character. Um, right. You don't really remember. Well, I, I don't want to say because I'm curious who you'll who you'll cite, but she stands out to me as somebody I really got and got to know. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I think it's a it's a very good performance, a really solid performance that the movie wouldn't fully work without it. Um, and I, but actually, we will be talking about the movie a little bit more later on. Okay. So, um, like I said before, I was on the fence about my acting pick, but I think I, I this one feels true to me, even though I was thinking of wanting to spread the wealth. But, you know, Khan does do ties sometimes or give two awards to the same movie. Um, it might feel repetitive for the conversation, but I do think that for me, Adrian Brody in The Pianist was really um, a performance that, that stuck with me um, and impressed me in quite a few ways. Um, I think similar to what I was saying about the script, the performance similarly um, avoids, you know, certain stuff and, and, and about character changing, about like, you know, the character that we see at the end is different from the one that we see at the beginning because he's gone through this whole you know horrendous saga but he's also not a completely different person or necessarily a better person for it I feel like he's just you know maybe a little less um, self-confident about his life and his situation understandably so but not that much different from what he was before and I think that's also a strength in the in the movie you know of of trying to depict something so harrowing and and the, the experience of going through that which is different from what we see in these like you know more um elaborate adventure or heroic tales um so yeah, yeah so how do you feel about this performance i like the performance a lot and um and only more so as it goes on and in some ways that are related to how I think the movie when it's shakiest for me is kind of in the family scenes in the beginning and mm -hmm. almost everything about it gets a little bit um there's some things I like throughout and some things that just kind of get sharper um I think something the movie's really good at and this may get back to your your enthusiasm for the screenplay too is that because we're following the story that we're following and we're not in the camps for example like the there's a lot more latitude to run into people who might be great, terrible, mixed, unclear, you know, like that, that the interactions are not uniform and even the interactions with the same other characters are not uniform. Mm -hmm. And so watching um, Brody try to calculate 
all that, um, but also be kind of past the point of calculation. If you're here and bringing food, like I'm good, you know, yeah. like, I, you seem like you might be a problem, but I don't have any energy to worry about that. Um, mm -hmm. And then just like the physicality of watching, not just how sort of um, spindly and scarecrowy he becomes, even in his movements, mm -hmm. um, trying to get across the street to the hospital. But um, I noticed this time watching it, the amount of, as he gets hungrier, um, there's something he's doing with his tongue and his mouth that's either sort of chewing on it because he's starving or that he has, you know, got a dental problem that is getting worse. Mm -hmm. um, but there's all kinds of suggestion of the all the things that would accumulate to your body and to your mind over this amount of time. And since the movie doesn't let itself feel very long, I think it would be possible to um, forget just how many years are passing while we're while we're sometimes in a single cut. Yeah. Um, but he charts all that really articulately. Um, yeah, I think that's very well said. And I, that physicality, that um, the kind of thing that can go wrong or feel like a like a missed, you know, note in a movie that had that wants to be as delicate, you know, it's in its own way it wants to be delicate because it's about as serious, controversial topic, and it wants to do it justice and 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 do do right by it right so it you don't want to sensationalize you don't want to make it all about this showcase of this performer who's like yep. you know going through it despite the fact that he is losing weight and he is having these issues and, and but it um yeah that's kind of the performance i was expecting this is another movie that i hadn't seen in a very long time um And, and I thought that, you know, like, since I saw it as a teenager the first time that I would have evolved in my taste in a way that I was going to find this a little too much from him. But I really didn't. I really thought that he was striking the right balance. And, and like you were saying, that he goes into all of these, for lack of a better term, actorly things. But it, it works and it pays off. And yeah. Yeah. So I was really impressed by that. And I'm glad that we're on the same page about it. I think well i haven't seen one of your choices but i i think all three that i have seen that we've mentioned i i think are great performances so um good on us i guess <laughs> aren't we doing a great job <laughs> fantastic um okay so how about we move on to your pick for best director which is another interesting tricky one at con since it has so many categories designed apparently to reward the film itself but in the french you know environment that means rewarding the director so there's end up being four awards that go to directors only one of which is called best director so how do we <laughs> feel <right>. about that <laughs> um and i i chose to think about it as like the director who made the biggest transformation of how well that movie turned out rather than as like second prize or something and um mm -hmm. and so i promise to all the listeners this is the last you're gonna have to listen to about the pianist if you're eager oh, wow. <laughs> movies will get there um but But among other things, on top of everything else we've already said, um, I really love the editing of this movie and the fact that so many scenes start just a little bit after you'd guess they would and they definitely wrap up a few beats before you think they would cut and that there's just a sense of even though the, what's happening in the scenes is often pretty static or pretty uncertain or congested as the vice is kind of closing around this family, Um, the film has a kind of uh, momentum to it that also doesn't feel very forced. And I think you feel the way in which we are rapidly circling and entering a drain while also feeling like 
the creepy suspense of not knowing if something has started yet even or not. And I like the way that the photography, which is so elegant and so burnished, um, which I think was one of the reasons it became easy to write this movie off as in some way, kind of like a coffee table movie about the Holocaust mm. or just prestige cinema. But, um, but the, for me, so much lands at the end of the movie when we watch him back in that symphony hall giving this concert and having re-entered the world of wealth and sort of uh, Epicurean cultural tastes that he was always part of and that the movie itself has had this coexistence of being really white tie and, and polished and um, but yet the heart of the whole film is not is not there. Like there's a kind of ironic friction in the movie to me of, of how good it often looks. Um, even though it's very clearly telling the story about desolation that it's telling. And mm -hmm. so just across the board in terms of all the things that Polanski would have to coordinate to, um, to not seem like he's flop sweating. I've got to make a different kind of movie about this event, um, but also bring some real craft and discernment to the ways everything's going to cooperate to tell the story. I'm just really impressed with it mm -hmm. as a piece of direction. Yeah, I would say a very tricky balancing act that he pulls off um, of wanting to, even though I also think of this movie uh, highly in its own way, like something like Schindler's List, you know, mm. wanting to bring it down a little bit from, from the realm of uh, Hollywoodness of that movie, right? Of, of bringing it to something, uh, for lack of a better term, more realistic or maybe more true to like the the sentiment that he that Polanski is trying to go for. Maybe not sensationalize as much, but there are moments that do feel very movie-ish in the movie, and moments of extreme, um, you know, tenseness and 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 like and horror and and mo moments that could be seen as manipulative of of our emotions in one way or another, because what was happening was certainly horrifying and and but striking that balance between not say going as far as to say this is something that cannot be depicted in fiction so I won't do it or going into like let me depict this with the full abandonment of wanting to make the most viscerally audience experience possible I think it's an incredibly tricky balancing act to do I don't know maybe if I had gone through the experience like he did I would feel differently about it and more confident in that I can pull it off but I would certainly never attempt it um you know yeah well and I, I read that that Spielberg tried to recruit him to direction there's list and that he turned it down mm -hmm. and said that he wasn't ready to confront any of this yet and um and I'm interested in and just how first person the movie is, even as we feel, I feel so outside of Spielman. It's not the kind of thing where I feel like I have lived as him mm -hmm. while I'm watching this, which would feel really distasteful yeah. for this movie to presume that or for me to presume that. And yet it's so oriented by just one person's perspective and we don't know anything that he wouldn't know. Um, so that too just feels like a really tricky needle to thread. And I, I, understand the entire position of needing him to not be rewarded or yes. not be employed and you know because we're talking so much about the movie i don't want it to seem like we're you know ignoring that um and there are a lot of positions about this that seem like legitimate and important for people to take um yeah but uh even 
while remaining cognizant of all that, including the survivor's repeated messaging of wishing the rest of us would move on as she had, um, doesn't mean that that's what we all have to fall into lockstep with either. But mm -hmm. um, but uh, the, there's a whole other story that I think he's uniquely qualified to tell and committed himself to, and um, that felt worth rewarding to me. I think that's fair. I think I felt similarly after watching the movie of like... You know, of all of his movies, this feels like a hard one to ignore because his personal experience feels so integral to to what this movie is and, and to why it works. So, um, yeah, so I feel what you're saying. The good news is that we are not an, an official awards body, given body, That's as right. much as we would like to be. So <laughs> maybe we don't have to worry about it too much. And the people listening who feel that way will forgive us for it. Um or not or not which is also, which is also fine please uh, feel free to send me any kind of mail i'll receive the hate mail as long as it's not overwhelming um so uh yeah any kind of attention is fine by me um that's why i have a podcast in the first place anyway uh my director so i think we are on similar pages about what the direct we want to award with this award that is called best direction in something about a particular vision that kind of makes pulls off the movie um, as a singular achievement more so than the movie as a whole. Um, I have two movies that I really considered for this. Um, again, trying to avoid a tie, trying to spread the wealth. One of them I am fairly confident we will be talking about later on your list. So I'm going to choose to talk about the other one, even though we have already mentioned it, but it is the movie uh, 10, directed by Abbas Karastami from Iran, which is the movie that we were talking about lady goes around driving a car and there's 10 sections with 10 different passengers sometimes repeat the passengers do repeat um in a very specific formal um exercise one could say right the director comes up with this idea he's gonna have two cameras or so he claims at the and in, in the in the car one filming the passenger one filming the driver and they're gonna have a conversation that he will later edit into a movie um and the reason why I felt like this was the best directing for me or the right choice is because, um, number one, this seems like a horrible idea to me. This seems like an idea that would result in a terrible movie. So, And the fact that it results in such a good movie, in my opinion, is really impressive, um, given that, you know, he even, like... I think jokingly, kiddingly called it a movie without a director. So I think that when I read mm. that quote, I was also like, oh, okay, so maybe there's something here to talk about because he is really taking all this footage and this idea and shaping it into something that um, I think I wrote in my Letterboxd review that it made me feel at one, at one point like, oh, this is incredible how I can feel so much out of something that is so simple and, and so seemingly un- uh, prepared, you know, like something that is kind of a bit of a, you know, obviously there's preparation for it and the actors knew kind of what each scene was supposed to be, but then they are, you know, driving around, doing what they are, and then just editing it into something that ends up feeling so uh, full and to have such a message to it and, and to connect with me emotionally as much as it does. And at the same time, it makes me a little bit... Uh, um, what's the word I'm looking at? A little bit depressed of thinking like, oh, this this just a really talented person who's behind this and like, too bad for 
all of us who are not quite as talented at this, right? You know, sometimes either you have it or you don't, and I guess this yeah. guy does, and that's kind of frustrating in its own way. But very, very um, impressed by how this movie um, connected with me and how much of it I found engrossing and entertaining and exciting, despite the fact that it's two people uh, driving in a car filmed with digital cameras at a time when digital photography wasn't particularly it was actually very ugly looking so yeah. um you know so i i think i'm not sure what what your thoughts are about the movie as a whole i obviously you talked about the main actor for a while yeah i um i only more admired it i hadn't seen it since 20 years ago in the theater that was true for a lot of these movies um and I remember at the time him being pretty candid about like, I didn't want to do the thing where we try to make digital photography look as much like 35 millimeter as possible. I wanted to actually kind of work with how rough and off-putting it's going to be visually and um, come up with an idea that, that would, you know, that would serve. Mm -hmm. I think I also learned like in the last couple of years that he used to be like a, a traffic manager or he had like oh. he had a job in before he was a filmmaker that had to do with like the infrastructures of roads and road planning and sort of traffic management that sort of puts a whole lot of his movies into a different perspective. But, um, but I did find the experiment of it, um, especially because I had sort of forgotten that it's not just the child, but a few other um, mm. figures who return more than once. And that, that gauging that those people are different on different days. And this woman is both the same and different on, on her own different trips, which may or may not be on different days. Um, that I just found like there was a lot to think about. And, yeah. um, and I also feel like particularly in the, you know, America was just so fully showing its ass about how ignorant and unspecific um, the whole country seemed to be about different Middle Eastern cultures mm. and about how to talk about gender or power in relationship to any um, Middle Eastern culture, much less the attempt to talk about them all, um, that there was so much just um, both in terms of, of critique and of praise seemed a little crude. Mm -hmm. in a way that the movie is not about her empowerment or yeah. <laughs> isn't about how um, uncomplicatedly wonderful it is when this woman takes off um, her headscarf yeah. and that solidarity is maybe a little too blunt as a term to describe what manifests in that moment between these two people who, you know, whatever. So I, I do feel like there are more, it feels like a movie that you only really need to see once. And in this second viewing uh chasing me from thinking oh great yeah and i before we move on i do want to talk about this kid really quickly because um i was a little i wasn't fully surprised but i but after watching the movie and reading some reactions from the time a lot of people really um thinking that the movie like you were saying which was not my experience watching it at all so that's what surprised me thinking of the movie as a very simplistic feminist take you know about like the oppression of women in iran this kid who is her the protagonist's son who reoccurs throughout the movie in more than one scene some people describing him as like you know patriarch like a little patriarchy in a bottle or something like that which surprised me because y yes he is clearly a product of a society that is very patriarchal and you know uh and he has very very 
definite ideas about manhood and womanhood that are yep. presenting in a lot of way. And he obviously is feeling a lot of frustration with his mother who has uh, divorced his father. Um, but I was, but I was also so very impressed and connected fully with this woman who is feeling very co a complicated time in her life. What having to have left this marriage in a society where that's not, you know, something that is easily accepted and struggling to connect with her child who clearly is not having it with her and, you know, trying different uh, approaches to it in in ways that were very touching to me. That just the fact that it wasn't like, you know, your typical like either, yes, I will listen to you, kid, and, and mm. that's it, or I will reprimand you because you're wrong, kid, kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. It's like this thing in the middle where... Sometimes he will say something that I feel like, oh, this is, I don't know if I agree with this. And she will be like, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, and I was surprised. And I was like, oh, yes, this is a full character from a full society. Like you were saying, multifaceted, complicated, you know, so much more than especially exactly like you were saying 20 years ago and right after 9-11 to like, you know, I can't imagine what it would have seen for for me to see something like that at that time. I think yeah. it would have probably proved very uh, mind blowing. Yeah, and I, I, it, it re refreshed my memory that her own engagements in those conversations, like there are times where I understand this child's sense of being uh, hectored, mm -hmm, <laughs> or mm -hmm. I, I can't take too much, I just got in this car. And yeah. then yesterday learned for the first time that that child transitioned later in life and oh. has also made a, a series of movies um, as an out non-binary queer uh, filmmaker who also made a, two, a couple years ago a really candid documentary about the sexual abuse happening in that family that uh, she was hiding at the time um, that they made this movie um, from her mother and oh, wow. um, and that it immediately shifted everything for me in this film about like why I want to be real clear about whose house I'm going to and not going to and, and not in a simplistic way but the, it turns out there were things that child was managing um, and that may well be feeding the extremity of emotion um, mm -hmm. in all directions that were not available to even the people who made the film and um, and also as a relationship that codes so manifestly within the terms of the film and its initial reception as like how does a seven-year-old boy mm -hmm. medical marks that the listeners won't see um sort of lord it over um a mother mm -hmm. um that even that is more complicated but is still a story about patriarchy yeah um and their relationships to it are not what they maybe appear um so again object that's easy to take as kind of a right there on the surface to be easily read sort of one one stop consumable mm -hmm. object that it just keeps unfolding um sometimes for really awful reasons all these new aspects yeah wow that's fascinating i did not know that about the actor i'm really glad you brought it up i will look more into that after we're done um yeah wow great okay so um so those are our picks for best director and we're going to move on now to so you know people listening who might not be super familiar with how con works there's three prizes that are called there's the palm door let's just say this the palm door is the top prize agreed upon it's the big one it's like best movie of the festival this is this is the prize then there's something called the grand prix which is the grand prize of the jury which is 
often interpreted as second best, but it's not entirely clear. Uh, and then there's a, something called the jury prize. So that's um, sometimes interpreted as third best, but sometimes people say, well, the third best really is the director prize. Or, so it's a little complicated, but we can talk about how we went about it. But um, let's start uh, with the jury prize. And maybe you can tell us how you decided to go about it, what it means to you, and which movie you picked for that. Yeah, you know, all those glosses are available from year to year, and, and they're also unstable in the ways that you described. Um, there are often ties in any of those um, mm -hmm. three planes, let's say. Yeah. And especially once I started being on a couple of festival juries, it became even more vivid to me of how often the jury prizes are like, we don't know that this was the best um, or even third best but it's a movie that we don't want to go see go unrecognized mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. or that it had what was what was auspicious about it really struck us even if um, we had some notes so this was the one area I did allow myself to cite two mm -hmm. um, oh, and almost opposite reasons um, one of them I really love which is Demon Lover um, and has just been a, um, <laughs> a weird movie to call a favorite because it's so caustic and brutal <laughs> in so many ways. Um, but I do find it really entrancing um, and a really timely, um, timely in a way that's like warts and all. Like there are things that are a little bit uh, overscaled or simplistic or opportunistic about the way it's thinking about economics and globalism and uh, gender and power and the internet. Um, but the schizophrenia of its own relationships to all those things, I think, actually evokes something really um, potent to be back in touch with about that moment and all those discourses. So I really love that movie. And even though I don't think it's like a Palme d'Or winner, mm -hmm. I would want to recognize it. Um, Josh Anker's Unknown Pleasures, which I just saw for the first time, mm -hmm. is almost the opposite. Um, I think there's so much that is so evocative about how realism can dial down from any impulse to be quote unquote entertaining even more than something like the sun or 10 where you kind of think you're getting a baseline of realism that's not trying to entertain you um and he has such an interesting way of of evoking national political contexts without dramatizing them and without offering anything as blunt as an allegory of hmm. them but just nothing in the way that these characters are relating and not relating and drifting away from each other or coming together would be happening if China and this particular part of China weren't in the transformative moment that it's in. Um, so in that way, it's kind of indispensable context, but the movie is about kind of three kind of drifter, loner, in one case you might even say loser, um, who are circling each other in ways that um, I, it has none of the entertainment propulsion of Demon Lover. Um, hmm. And if anything, I, I would want to give it a jury prize to say, I'm so impressed with this. I learned so much. Um, it's so different from what other people would offer. It's as embracing of the potential aesthetic value of ugly photography as 10 is. Hmm. I hope eventually this becomes a filmmaker who becomes interested in his audience a little bit. Like give us something. <laughs> it's a tough sit. And I think you see how he does that later in his career. But I was really uh, impressed with it. Wow, great. And you've picked two directors who I have, um, I don't know what to call it, complicated, I guess, relationships with, or maybe a little bit ambivalent. Like, I feel like there's many movies of theirs that sporadically I find very interesting, very fascinating, great sequences. And then they kind of like lose me a little bit. And I'm like often... Really? 
uh, you know, bored by them a little bit. Unknown pleasures. I couldn't get to it before this, so. Uh, but it does sound very interesting the way the way you describe it, and I know that Josh Anker, the Chinese director, is a very uh, beloved figure by a lot of people who I I really respect and 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 whose opinions I value. So it's some someone to dig further into. Um, Olivier Asayas, who is the director of Demon Lover. Similar situation for me. Very often not really vibing with his movies. I'm going to go ahead and say I did not really vibe with Demon Lover. Um, almost at all. But I'm very curious that, as I often am, when you love a movie that I don't, like, what is what is he seeing in this? Um, because some, it's often something very interesting, even if I don't, when I don't agree with it. Um, so would you care to go a little bit deeper into what you see in Demon Lover? Like, where's, like, you know, what are those things that, that make you gravitate towards it? Yeah, um, and, and I'll just say both for Josh Junker and Olivia Asayas, I have the same relationship to like, I just don't know walking in, both if I'll like it or not, or if I'll like it in a pretty cold vein of admiration mm -hmm. without feeling a lot of organic enthusiasm, which often happens to me with Josh Junker. Um, and Olivia Asayas, I feel like it's such a Soderbergh for me of like, sometimes <laughs> I feel like a third of the way into the movie, he got bored making it, you know, right. or... <laughs> or what he was going to learn from like this weirdo little gadget that he's going to make in these six weeks turned out to not be that rewarding. Um, whatever. You know, I kind of admire that they are such workhorses and mm -hmm. keep trying to learn things and that we get to see all their sketchbooks. Um, Demon Lover, um, I'm really fascinated with it as a like uh, remake of Mulholland Drive less than a year later of watching <laughs> one filmmaker be so taken with somebody else's um, project that like they're almost barely recontextualizing it into different terms about industry and femininity mm. and um, sort of off-screen sinister cabals that are driving all the entertainment factories that we subscribe to. But rather than kind of this retro classic Hollywood thing, thinking about the contemporary media forms, um, mm. I'm really interested, especially since there were so many movies that that uh, even when the movies weren't doing it, the reception was making them sort of um, more blunt sort of feminist statements or female empowerment messages like this movie is just not doing that, even though no. there is a kind of um, swagger and unapologetic mercilessness to the ways that women encounter each other in this capitalist system that the movie yeah. is definitely about. Um, I'm, I really just find it so engaging how much of a complicated industry rivalry espionage counter espionage narrative it it gins up for itself only to kind of splatter paint all of that and go off into wild directions in ways that do feel to me like people talk all the time about how you know one of the reasons it's so hard to resist capitalism or even think about what it is is because it's hard to make an image of it mm. and i think that the way that this film manages to combine a real structural map of where power plays out and how violently, but also a utter admission that like any attempt to actually hold it in an image or in a story is going to disperse and fall apart. And it's just not simple enough to mm -hmm. kind of fit um, even in a genre. And so all those things um, I really admire about it while also just having to admit that I, I just find it so entrancing um, and okay. it has so many reasons to feel repugnant which it often does but sort of holds my um kind of admiration for its own willingness to go there with the things it did say it was about so it is now going to be about them um yeah i guess that's what i would say 
Wow. Okay. Yeah. Already. That's thank you for that. Um, for indulging my question. Um, I think that already makes it feel like something much more interesting than I than I initially thought, and something worth revisiting. Even if I must admit, it's something that I don't foresee revisiting particularly <laughs> soon. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think there's just maybe um a personal hang up about you know a personal just kind of disgust maybe with a uh, corporate world and you know things like that that kind of like kept me uh from going into it for people who might not know it's a movie kind of about this corporation french corporation this french businesswoman who's trying to make a deal to acquire a japanese uh porn company right like a 3d porn company basically like an anime porn company that's shifting into a 3D C yeah. computerized porn company, but the reason that they might really want it is because it is the the secret or not so secret house of a torture porn site mm -hmm. that's locked away inside it. Yeah. As you can tell, don't watch it with your family, you know. But um, <laughs> but yeah. yes, and in the very first scene of the movie, is poisoning other people on an airplane on a corporate jet to ensure that she will uh, get to run this whole deal and make her own career and feels very invulnerable to everything that she's managing, especially because she's a pretty killer strategist, but she's overconfident. Yeah. Um, I just got to say you, you comparing it to Mulholland Drive at the beginning really clicked something for me that I, that I was like, Oh, I guess it is kind of like that. It, and the idea of it looking into the future instead of the past to do something similar to that, that I find very interesting. So um so uh, there you go listeners sometimes a movie you dislike completely can be much more interesting than you think on, on first view um but anyway my pick for jury prize is um very much like you were saying just a movie that i wanted to give something to and this ended up being the one place to do it which is uh paul thomas anderson's punch drunk love which um to me i really like paul thomas anderson maybe that's kind of like a basic opinion to have uh, nowadays but permitted but but i do but i do really love his movies and i have and i think at this point after phantom fred and licorice pizza that's something that my love has really grown and i think i really love when he makes movies about romance and movies uh, mm. like love stories um which pun drunk love is for the most part um even though i think it's much more focused on the adam sandler character than in the emily watson character i do think there is something there about, um, I think he has a very particular and a little bit twisted, a little bit kinky vision of love, of what love is and what romance is that I think resonates with me in a sense of like, you know, my wife got really upset at me when I called Phantom Thread one of the most romantic movies I've ever seen, but it's because... Um, I find that these two people are so insufferable in their own ways and so difficult to be together that the fact that they can find love is really touching to me. You know, it's easy uh -huh. when it's like two beautiful, you know, Meg Ryan, Tom Hanks finding love. Of course, they're going to make yeah. it work. But when it's like these prickly people, <laughs> there's something about it. And I really connected with the Adam Sandler character here with his kind of like... Uh, underlying rage. I think it's a it's an ingenious bit of casting for the time to have, you know, this man who's known for ra comedic rage outbursts in mainstream comedies to then be in this art film in which he really is channeling that frustration it, and and the you know the filmmaking is like hiding that even more with the score and the and the oppressive visuals of like how um you know going into a surreal place of how wound up he is really mm -hmm. by by this whole thing and but also i think the movie's clear right about how 
much of that warmth upness is within him and how much is outside of him and how um that doesn't mean that he is a fool for feeling this way but it also does it it also means that there's a way out of it as well which i also found touching in its own way mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. again i'm not really sure how you feel about this movie so i'm curious to yeah, know. i'm not really sure how i feel about this movie but i, I think uh, as we keep kind of circling back to and as i find really just one of the reasons i'm so enthusiastic about this particular year i was so excited that you wanted to talk about it was that i feel like a lot of the movies in play gave me different ideas about what was possible from these directors Mm -hmm. or showed a different color of a body of work that has a strong signature but is elastic in other ways yeah and there um and that that there are a lot of filmmakers like the ones that we've talked about but we could you know add people like michael moore or amos katai or Manuel de Oliveira or um, whoever else, David Cronenberg, um, mm-hmm. that people have different favorites um, and which one is their favorite may say something, you know, even to us. And so Punch Drunk Love is not a favorite for me per se. Um, and almost everything I like about it and respond to about it, I'm I'm liking and responding in the first half. And like mm. once the Philip Seymour Hoffman, Adam Sandler kind of like, you know, yeah. um, clash of wills takes over i get a lot less interested and feel like the movie even as a short film especially by anderson's standards at the time is struggling to end um <laughs> but um as a stylistic proposition i really think it's so vivid and so punchy um mm-hmm. amazingly that this was never the competition jury but like this is another thing for the listeners if they don't know there, there used to be something actually there still is it's just less publicized but there's a technical grand prize that's now called something else that used to be given a few days later mm. um to a specific sort of aesthetic quality of one of the movies in competition um that somebody of determinants who i don't know understand who they are um would give and i think john bryan's score would have been a great Mm. um recognition of, of given that this year was so amazing the fact that they that one year decided not to give the prize oh like, wow um so uh you know i don't know what was going on with that but um at the level of the image at the level of the sound at the time anderson was so famous for these giant 20 protagonist character panoramas and so does it feel what it might feel like when he does what he's almost only done since which is mm-hmm focus around one or two people um I, that felt really kind of revelatory so a jury prize would be exactly where i would go if i were going to go somewhere with it i don't i don't like it as much as you do but mm-hmm. it's um but i respect it a lot yeah and even for me i have to say it's also not a favorite of of f- from anderson for me but i i think it's because of what you're saying that it does feel like a turning point in his in his filmography and in his in his, his focus into something different and you know introducing romance which is what i was talking about in that way which um um which makes it feel like maybe like like you were saying like a minor film some people would say like one of the ones not the big ones you know when it comes to paul thomas anderson but it still holds a very interesting place for me and it does touch me in a particular way so yeah, yeah. i think that was very well said um you already gave your jury prize right yes so we're on to the twofer yeah the grand pre or the grand prize of the jury, um, president of the jury, Nick Davis, who has who's gotten the prize. <laughs> um, so it's the film that tied with Anderson for best director for me. It's a uh, um which translates to Painted Fire um, by a South Korean filmmaker called Inquantech. 
Um, it's a frustratingly difficult movie to see online right now. So yes. please, everybody who can't find it. I wrote um, to you saying, I'm trying to find this this movie's last minute that I can't find. And this one was one of them. I was really yeah. trying to find it and I couldn't. And I have one of those um, DVDs from 20 years ago that thank goodness I bought it. But also it's a 20, you know, DVDs weren't that old in 2002. Right. And like it deserves to look better than it does. Um, but it's a really, really incredible um, uh, biopic of a painter, um, which was not a description of it that filled me with desire to race toward it. And, um, and the still images had suggested something much more kind of docile and pictorial um, than the movie turns out to be. Um, the, the painter, the real life painter from the end of the 19th century in South Korea is played by Choi Min-sik, who probably a lot of people know as old boy. Um, and mm. who showed up over and over again um, as a protagonist of a lot of quite generically disparate Korean films um, at that moment. Um, and it's so excitingly made. Um, before there was much of a programmed audience for Korean cinema. And when that turn finally happened, um, I remember, I don't know how it was for you, Conrado, I came into an awareness of what Korean cinema at large was once it was being offered as like, genre thrillers mm. and psycho freakouts mm -hmm, and monster mm -hmm. movies and um just barely tolerable revenge you know really grisly um and th this film came out right before all of that and um and even though it is the story of an artist and some biopic tropes sort of show up in it one of the things you realize about it quickly is that it's about a calligrapher um who also becomes um famous um, for being an artist who's so profoundly gifted and nobody can understand it because he's not from the right social class to have been trained or to have any huh. talent at all or to be even allowed to step into this you know house. Um, <laughs> and his control over clean strokes, um, just letting the energy of his hand move through him, uh, accomplishes so lot in short, sharp kind of gestures. So the movie is like full of scenes that are like um, 30 seconds long. Oh. And it doesn't feel hyper edited. Um, it's not about that either. Um, and it's a fully imagined late 19th century South Korean world with all the production design and the unbelievable artworks and natural landscapes and man-made landscapes that you can see what trouble the production has gone to, especially when sometimes we only spend 45 seconds in any of these places. Mm. Um, it's even more than the pianist. I think it's a really incredible way to talk about and you even kind of got at it with what you were saying about Kiarostami, that at some level there's inborn talent in some people, or it wasn't inborn, but nobody knows how it was produced. Um, and at another level, we are all shaped by our own cultural conditions. And both of those things are held in tension across the film. Um, the character is intensely sympathetic and intensely not. And sometimes that's fluctuating over time, but they often kind of coexist in the same way. Um, I think a lot of movies about art really struggle to actually even address why is the art so incredible and get really bogged down yep. in personal drama. And this movie is full of melodramatic personal incident, but really makes you as the reader understand what is new and sophisticated, but also um, kind of old and canonical about this person's work. You kind of become a, a bit of a connoisseur while you're watching it. Um, while also sharing all the other characters' mystification about exactly what is it that I'm responding to here, that even in a close copy of the same canvas, I don't feel the same way. Like, I just, I, there's much, much, much I can say about it, but every single element of the filmmaking 
works to make it so special. And I, I know Tim Roby said it would be his poem when I talked to him about this the other day. Everybody I've asked has a different <laughs> choice, which is another suggestion of what a cool year this was. But um, it's definitely one that I wish, um, like some of these others, I wish it were more available now. Yeah, I wish so too. I would have loved to see it. And I really wanted to. Just the idea of a, of a biopic about a great calligrapher was such an alien thing to, to me in this, you know, um, American society, you know, like when's the last time I thought about calligraphy in my life, but yeah. but just, yeah. Such... And I should correct myself to say he kind of starts as that and then he's a watercolorist, but only oh, okay, in black okay. and white, and then he's a painter, but only in black and white, and then he's doing color. Like he, the, the gifts keep coming in different contexts, but sorry oh. to interrupt. No, 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 that's, that's great. Um, and I guess, yeah, so I'll just transition into my pick because um, I think it somewhat dovetails, you know, it was funny when hearing you about talk about like your introduction to Korean cinema through this genre movies, you know, I'm thinking as well, for the most part, like old boy and the host for me. But thinking about it, one of the, the, the actually the first Korean movie that I ever saw is not really... I wouldn't say it's in that realm. It's the movie Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring by yep. Kim Ki-duk, which is a very different from that style, but yep. it fits in with my Grand Prix because it is among uh, a couple of movies that when I was starting to get into movies, I would hear about like the rare art house movie that would play in the in the movie theaters in Lima, Peru, which is where I grew up. And it was like a special thing because the film critics, you know, were saying, oh, this movie is so great. I was trying to get into movies. I would go see this movie and I would be a little bit puzzled of like, what is going on here? Huh? You know, um, sp spring, summer, fall, winter and spring was one of them. And the other another one is my pick for Grand Prix, which is um, uh, The Man Without a Past from Aki Karismaki, the fin Finnish director, Finn director. I don't know what the right word is, but you get it. He's from Finland. Yeah. Um and that was a movie that is like it is true for all charismatic movies that I've seen. This very droll, deadpan sense of humor to tell a pretty sad, depressing, in the most part, melancholy story about people just trying to make it through and often living in, in not ideal conditions. Often poverty is part of it, maybe depression and things like that. Um, this one in particular is a man who uh, is attacked by a by a group of like seems like a gang members or something uh, maybe kind of like neo-nazi types um and then he uh, loses his memory of who he was he has no id he doesn't remember who he is so he the only thing that he can do is find some charity and then go live in a community of uh basically like you know outsider um people who are trying to 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 live in the outskirts of society um the few attempts that he makes to to find a job or things like that are rejected because of the bureaucratic, uh, you know, situation of like not knowing what your name is. So like you can't open a bank account, et cetera, et cetera. Um, at the time, I remember finding it as a kid pretty boring, but also mm -hmm. being really mesmerized by the style, the sense of humor that I you know, I'm I'm even surprised that I could recognize it as humor. I guess because some people around me were laughing. I was telling like, this is a joke. Um, this must be humor. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and there's something about it, about that style that really hit me in that time that spoke to me. I think it's something, you know, looking back and it's, some, it's the same thing that really made me gravitate towards kind of, you know, the peanut specials on TV, which also have this kind of melancholy vibe to them. Comparison. Yeah. 
I've, I've thought about this a lot. Yeah, so that, and then not long after watching this, I would get to like Wes Anderson movies, which I think I also kind of in that vibe, but maybe in a more kinetic, more uh, showy filmmaking element to them, right? You know, something like Royal Tenements of Life Aquatic has a lot of narration, a lot of different characters, colorful, very specific costumes, whereas this is a little bit more subdued. But, uh, but watching it again, I was really, um, you know, I couldn't help but bring me back to that moment where this kind of fascination really started with this with his style. And um, and I also was very impressed with um, how deeply, you know, sad, but also deeply clear eyed about its political messages. The movie is about the injustices, about the mm -hmm. ridiculousness of this system about um, the injustices of, you know, capitalism, or in this case, you know, in Finland, just like the bureaucracy of like, you know, trying to, the limitations of this, the, the social welfare state that we put on, on, on certain things and, and, and societies and things like that. So, um, yeah, so that's my pick. Um, yeah. <laughs> and has it, um, what's your relationship then to, to, Kawasaki's body of work, both in terms of like, is this a standout in your affections, or do you feel a lot of that fondness for a lot of them? Do they feel pretty similar, or or more importantly, different for you? Yeah, I I've actually haven't seen that many, um, because partially because it's been hard to find some of them at some different points, or you know, but I think I do think that this stands out to me. I wonder if it is because it's the first one that I saw, but it really does feel like a bit of a compilation of his of his instincts you know and and a very much like i do really appreciate his um way of using this style which i this is something that i really thought about when revisiting the movies not in first watch but you know later on to a style that i had come to associate with really you know feelings and and this feeling of melancholy depression and 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 you know, very emotional thing to marry it so clearly to something political that I hadn't really thought about. And I, I think that he mm. does very well. And he threads those needles or those two tracks really um, well in this movie, which I think does make me make it stand out for me as one of his best or the ones that I think about the most. Yeah, I had kind of a befuddled first impression of it too, even though I liked it. Um, mm -hmm. And I, by the time it showed up in theaters, I knew about these two prizes. Um, it also won... Uh, it won the same award that you're giving it, and it won the uh, Actress Prize. Um, and it was nominated for an Oscar, which it felt to me like one of those movies that like, I knew why the cinephiles would submit it and would hope it would get nominated, but yeah. it, it struck me as the kind of thing that the Academy at that time, when that category was, uh, you know, had it even less well together than it does now, like would have been like, what is that? And so like, I, it was just so surprising to me that um, that, film had not adjusted its idiosyncrasies from his other work at, at all. And yet this one seemed to really resonate. So I've always been curious mm -hmm. about how that sort of manifested. And he's another one like others that we've talked about where I feel like his movies have such strong um, motifs in, in photography and in sound and in casting and in, in story and situation often. And yet I respond a lot to some of them. And sometimes I leave them pretty cool. And this one I like. Um, but it's never been a sort of favorite per se. And yet I think I've seen it three times now because I am kind of drawn to it. And I always mm -hmm. do kind of wonder as well. I, I'm working with a master's student right now who wants to write their uh, thesis with me about Kaurismaki's movies. Mm. And like they are like, 
Maki and Apisha Pangras at the cool are like the two uh-huh. cinema heroes for this guy who seem like really different heroes to have in some ways and, and in other ways maybe not. No, and I I'm mean, just... they're two of my heroes too, so I can tell you there's something there. there you ought to meet Jim. <laughs> um, and so I'm so, it's like the perfect reason to be around somebody. It's like you asking me about Demon Lover. Like I want to hear what somebody who just loves them mm. wants to say about them. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. So I, I like it a lot, but not not where you are with it, but I like it a lot. Well, yeah, what I will say is that I think we are on the same page about, I also don't know why this seems to be the one that a lot of people connect with, because I agree with you, it doesn't feel particularly different to me from everything else, except that I, you know, think it's one of, might be one of his best, but I also have wondered, why does this one get an Oscar nomination and why did so many people at Cannes reading these things think like this was the obvious Palme d'Or winner it has to win you know yeah which you know but um I guess that's one of those weird zeitgeisty things or something um that was and this is not to take anything away from the movie but um and given where I I think we both have strong suspicions where we're both going with our (laughs) palm picks but um your film is not without its moments of levity either but uh, it's hard to shortchange the what people feel when they finally see something droll um, in between the irreversibles and the demon lovers That's and true. the spiders and um, and not just nine eleven but like there was always a lot you know mm-hmm. the millennium itself like the idea of a film about a reboot um, and having you know whatever past you're responding to how do you start over and yeah. deal with everything in the world that makes it hard to start over and yet start over. Um, yeah, I, I I always wonder about that if that was part of the its excitement in the moment. I I think there's definitely something to levity at film festivals, especially of this kind. I mean, this podcast has talked in the past about Shrek playing at Cannes competition, and yeah. a lot of reports from the time are like, "Oh, what a breath of fresh air to have seen yeah. Shrek among all this, you know, dour movies." So yeah, that's a strong, strong feeling when you're watching a lot of uh, very. Um, serious dramas um and not a hard one to imagine david lynch being really into i mean i know we've agreed mm. at the beginning of this conversation that you know there's not ever a one-to-one match about what what people respond to but um in those it feels to me like you know when quentin tarantino's jury gave the grand jury prize to old boy i was like well i i think i'm seeing what everybody could get on the same page with and what the jury press really wanted right right <laughs> what, the... what, what seems to strongly overlap mm-hmm. at least um, in sensibility but um, yeah yeah. And and yeah, and I think for con kind of like fanatics or like, you know, people who like to read into the things, I think the Grand Prix has become a little bit of like, this is what the jury president really wanted to win, you yeah. know, yeah. Um, with the Almodovar love for BPM a couple of years ago. A lot of people think of that, things like that. And obviously yeah, the, the Coen brothers seem more like Son of Saul people to me, maybe than and, like yeah. um, when people. But, you know, all I cared about this year was what did Sharon Stone like? What was she saying? In the jury <laughs> I read her memoir hoping she would tell us. And Yeah, I think we're both on the group of people who really wish that every single that the can jury membership comes with a deal to write a novel. I mean, a memoir afterwards about your experience. (laughs) That's right. Um, Anyway, and that brings us to our big ones, uh, the Palm Door, and um, yeah, I think like you were saying, I think we both have good ideas of where we're going. So, Nick, take us there. So, mine is Russian Ark, and it's both like. As much as I hope you're hearing my enthusiasm for all the movies that we've been talking about, it's to, and, and for plenty that it's mystifying to me that they weren't in competition. Um, 
but we're in sidebars this year. Um, if Morvern Collar had been in the Palm competition, I would have a tough choice. But um, Russian Arc is both way out ahead of me in terms of like, I just love it by far the most. But also, I like that it's so polarizing. Mm -hmm. and, and to represent a competition that was full of movies that made different demands on different viewers and went down in different ways, um, it also has a appeal for me as a kind of emblem of this year at Con. And if, you, if people don't know the movie, which unlike others, is relatively accessible, um, on various platforms now, and they just put out a really great new Blu-ray not too long ago. Uh, it's a one-shot film that is not cheating that um, technique. They really did film it in one take um, that moves through the hermitage in the middle of the night from an unseen narrator who you only ever hear who seems to be having, can't even work out if they're having a dream or a nightmare or a fantasy or an afterlife experience. And this kind of slightly uh, aristo feet vampiric person is sort of the only person who can see our off-screen narrator and mm -hmm. is leading them through um, this uh, kaleidoscopic might suggest more energy in the film than it necessarily has, but this kind of prismatic sense of all of these different tableaus, some well-known to Russian audiences, but not to us, some well-known to everybody. You run into Catherine the Great at one point, although what she really needs to do is find a bathroom. Some are as obscure to Russian viewers, many of them, as to us. Um, and so you get this kind of inchoate but highly evocative um, amalgam of what, you know, the thousands of years of history of a vast and complicated place might feel like if you experience them in one go. And you get this kind of sublime, cathartic out. Um, exit um, through this massive orchestral performance, um, but that can't, almost like in a pianist, it can't cover up for how um, sometimes morbid and sometimes spooky and sometimes sad and sometimes just impenetrable a lot of the movie has felt. Uh, as, a, as a technical feat, I don't know how you get better than a 90-minute film made by a Russian filmmaker who speaks no German and a German camera <laughs> operator who speaks no Russian, and they only had two afternoons for four hours apiece. The director's fucking blind um, <laughs> to get this right. Um, but also, you know, with Russia's well-known history as the national cinema that inaugurated montage and editing as the way you think about history and the way you think about cinema mm -hmm. and what's challenging about it to tell, I, I read what you posted about like, well, how would I relate to Peruvian arc? Like, would it be even more right. my speed or would it resonate in some different ways just necessarily? Um, and I think it's such an interesting experiment to imagine in different national contexts. But I, I think for that reason, it feels so um, pointedly Russian to me mm -hmm. um, to, it's not just look how long I can let my camera run, but um, let me tell the history of a country that has insisted on an opposite way to film history mm. and um, and not allow it and not allow our histories to be fully transparent even in retrospect to ourselves and mm. again at a time where everybody and I'm sure I was included in this was like running around with our confident assessments of how did we get here to the year 2000 how did we get here to 9/11 how do we read other cultures like to to see a filmmaker, pay such opulent testimony to the fact that history is impenetrable and um, you can spectacularize it and also have a really precarious sense of what you're looking at. I just found so refreshing in context, even though I probably would have liked the movie at any, at any time. So that's my, that's my big pitch for Russian arc. <laughs>
Great. I think that sounds great. I think uh, this is the movie that I was talking about when we were talking about director that I was had mm-hmm. basically tied with 10 uh, for Best Direction because I was thinking, and I really just skipped it because I, in the essence of time, because I knew we were going to talk about it later, but... <laughs> yeah. um, just the yeah the, the 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 directorial approach to it is really makes the movie you know it's it's basic it's its dna and um i similarly find this was also another of the movies that i went to see because the critics were because it did play like in 2004 or something in peru and the critics were saying how great it was and that baffled me a little bit but that also there was just a sense of the spectacular that was undeniable about what i was seeing especially that finale and just um the orchestration of the whole thing um, was impressive. It would be impressive to anyone who sees it, I think, in one way or another. Then, of course, are the people who will say, well, it's just a parlor trick of the long take. But I do think that you get at something that feels to me... I think you're right. I I don't know what it is. I don't know Russian history. I I haven't thought and lived with this movie as long as you have. Um, But I I can tell that there's something there being expressed about how this man feels about the the character and the history of his country. Uh, And I have, you know, of someone who's lived in a couple different countries, I do think about those things a lot. And And I think about the differences between... I also went to a German school, so I think about Germany a lot. So I think, you know, uh, uh-huh. I think about like, what's it like to have a Peru? Is there such a thing as like a Peruvian vision of the world, a German vision, an mm. American vision of the world? So I have thought about those things pretty often. And I think this movie really um, impresses me on that level, even if I feel like maybe I don't have the keys to unlock it just yet. I also agree very much with what you're saying about the context in which that movie comes out and tries to present a complicated history of its country, which I think does lead me into my pick for Palm d'Or, so I'm just going to segue into it. Yeah. Um, I had heard about director Elia Suleiman for a couple of years now, um, but I hadn't really seen any of his movies until they were made avail- available by the... Oh, man, now I can't remember. I think it's the Arab Museum or something, National Arab Museum or something like that, oh, okay. that put their movies up for a couple of weeks uh, for free to watch uh, mm-hmm. during quarantine, and I watched... Uh, some of them, the ones that I could. I didn't get to this one that I will be talking about, but I was immediately taken by it because he does have a bit of that droll sense of humor like you were talking about, kind of like a Karismaki style of deadpan comedy mixed in with maybe like a Jacques Tati element to it because he does put himself in his movies and he is always silent in them, doesn't uh, really speak while he plays characters that are clearly kind of like just transparently based on himself. Um... So I watched this one, Divine Intervention, which is the one that he had at Cannes in 2002, a couple of weeks ago. It is available on Netflix, or at least it was when I watched it. And again, I think it's just a matter of like this director really speaks to me and I really appreciate, very similarly to what I was saying with Karismaki, the way that he mixes this style of deadpan absurdity that I really love and really speaks to me with uh, political issues. He's a Palestinian director. I haven't said that. So this movie really is about his experience living in Palestine under, you know, uh, uh, certain occupations, having to go through the checkpoints, f- expressing the frustrations of that stuff through fantasy sequences of, of you know, of like revenge, perhaps in, in some of them. And then also turning the mirror a little bit on, on the Palestinian society and in, in itself and talking about you know, what is it like, what is it to be a good neighbor? You know, something that maybe has mm-hmm. a more loaded meaning in, in that context that, yeah, yep. that 
in Queens where I am, you know, even though I have opinions about my neighbors too, but you know, um, <laughs> different podcasts. Yeah, exactly. Different podcasts. Um, but yeah, so that, so that really spoke to me and that really, um, it's also a political situation that I didn't really know a lot about until recent years. I've become more informed about it. So I think that also plays into it. And I also really love, and I really respect any movie that tries to take on these um, serious political topics in an unexpected way, especially through mm. through through comedy or through. Um, I just had something, you know. I've, I'm. It's, it's a different movie, but for some reason, I'm thinking of Usman Sembene's Mulade, which is the movie that he oh, made about, oh. uh, you know, a female circumcision in 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 Senegal in Africa, and how that movie is about such a thing. You know, the experience with the movie, I think everyone talks about, you mentioned the topic and you feel like everyone's going to be like, oh, that's going to be a tough watch. And it's not at all. It's such a movie yeah. full of life and complications. And and I feel similarly about Divine Intervention. Hmm. It's a movie about life in Palestine, but it's but it's not that. It's like something about this person who is there and who has, like we were talking about in so many other of the movies we mentioned today, a really full experience of of life in, in many more facets than anticipated. Uh-huh. So that's kind of my attempt to bring it all together with some of the other movies we were talking about. Um so but do you have any thoughts about divine intervention? Again, like back to the motif of like even the movies that I respond to more in some scenes than others or like some things about and other things like a little bit less um it's such a provocative film. And like the idea of getting to see it in exactly this kind of context and talk to nine other people about it, but also talk to thousands of other people about it um, is like the perfect way, I think, to encounter that film. Um, and there are scenes, I think I've seen it twice, like when it was new and then like maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And there are scenes like the opening with the Santa Claus mm -hmm. and um, the, I won't ruin it because it's kind of <laughs> so great, but like the, the good neighbor thing that you're talking about um, that were just so um, funny in some ways and also unsettling in other ways. Mm -hmm. And um, and then there are other vignettes, like most of the stuff with the woman, especially by the time it becomes the sort of... Um, kind of Matrix parody. Kind of pastiche, yeah, yeah um, parody that I, I was kind of less taken with. Mm -hmm. um, but But even to think about how that film's refusal to settle down into one tone and the way in which it is both a series of compartmentalized vignettes but there are through lines like is its own challenge to the way we think about history and the and the version of historical storytelling that we might be expecting whoever we are mm -hmm. from the place in the world where it's coming from i think both of these two movies um take some real risks um and and aren't catering to any one particular audience. Um, and they both feel so, um, I mean, I know we can get too far down the road when we talk about films of just enshrining the director, but it's really hard to imagine either of these movies not being a kind of collectively achieved expression of a pretty individual sensibility mm -hmm, about mm -hmm. um, something that they want to express in the way that they want to express it. And um, Chronicle of a Disappearance, I think I like even more. Um, oh. so, this was the first Suleiman movie that I saw mm -hmm. um, and had still only seen maybe three or four. But mm -hmm. um, so, you know, back with um, the Andersons and the Cronenbergs and even people we haven't talked about at all today. Like, mm -hmm. you know, I think this is you know, Alexander Payne made a not very good movie, I think, in this competition. But there are yeah. a lot of 
um, a lot of people who it, these were the movies I discovered them through and then often found things that I liked even more or maybe less or just showed me different colors of these artists and mm -hmm. this feels kind of like his most essential movie. I could see that, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I think that's a great way to, to, to wrap things up, which is, yeah, we're basically at the end. Um, I had a great time. Thank you, Nick, so much for being on the show. It's becoming a bit of a tradition, and, you know, if you're down to keep it going, I'm definitely down as well. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. I always love talking to you. This has been a delight. All right. Thank you so much, and thanks, everyone, for listening. All right, that's it for the show. Thanks again to Nick Davis for coming on and talking about the Cannes Film Festival with me. Again, if you want to see more of Nick's writing, which I highly recommend, go on his website, nick-davis.com, or in Letterboxd and search for Nick Davis there. There you have it. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you check out some of these movies, and I uh, hope to be in your ears soon uh, with more or an invader or other podcast adventures thanks everyone for listening um feel free to you know obviously like subscribe share with someone who you think might enjoy this podcast i would really appreciate it and feel free to chime in i am on twitter i am on letterboxd i am on instagram you can find me and um tell me what you think about this movie so you know just tell me whatever you want to tell me if you have anything to say um i will probably write back and we can start a conversation all right thanks everybody <laughs> <laughs>